This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Great, great. I think we are live here on Facebook. I think we're live here. I'm just checking on my end. I believe we, ooh, we live. How y'all doing? Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this exciting discussion. I know you're ready for this. Hold up, let me do the right intro because I think this is gonna make all the difference in the world. Y'all ready? Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic Live, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And we are so excited to be here to talk to you about a review and a response to the PBS documentary that came out earlier this week, The Black Church. It was run and created by Dr. Henry Louis Gates. And I have an esteemed panel that is on to talk about this. Before I introduce them, let me just make a couple of disclaimers and also uh, make for you an invitation. The first disclaimer is this. We're running this through Zoom, so we're gonna be looking at comments and I hope that you are ready and willing and excited uh, to be able to share some questions for our esteemed panel. So I hope that you're ready, get your questions ready. We're gonna take those at the end of this conversation. Now, number two, here at The Witness, one of the things we try to do is we try to speak to the expansive black Christian tradition. So this means the historic black church as it was attempted to be represented in the black church documentary. This also means those faith activists who find more identification with the streets than the sanctuary and also those Black Christians who are in white evangelical spaces or majority white mainline spaces as well. And this also includes those who are in a space where they're recognizing that maybe their faith needs to evolve a little bit and they're still trying to figure out what that looks like in 2021. I hope that you see that there is space for you regardless of where you fall into that. Um, but we, as, as diverse as this panel is, we are not all encompassing in our diversity. So. Based upon that, I just want to hold space that we are going to do our best possible job to encompass all that we can, but I'm sure we're going to fall short. So I hope that you give us some grace and some mercy in that. And then another disclaimer is we recognize that we're able to have this conversation right now in a moment where people do not have shelter, food, water, um, and who are in tragic, catastrophic circumstances. So it would be remiss of us to, to have this great platform and this captive audience and not encourage you to donate to one of the many mutual aid funds in Texas, to not to encourage you to donate um, whatever you can to those who are struggling in this moment. And so if you're in Texas and you just got your heat back on, you just got your power back, whatever it may be, uh, we're standing with you. We're praying for you. And in the spirit of Black church generosity, we're going to give to causes that improve and flourish your existence as well. And then finally, we have a number of people who are on right now. Listen, y'all share this broadcast. Come on, do it, do it, do it for the culture, do it for the witness. Just go ahead and share this broadcast, share it with your friends list. You know, you see the panel I got, these people don't miss. Come on, trust me, okay? They do not miss 
share this broadcast. Okay, let's get to introductions here. We are, of course, talking about the Black Church documentary, and I'll start with the first introduction, the CEO of The Witness. He is a two-time best-selling author, a New York Times best-selling author for The Color of Compromise, and also best-selling author for his latest book, How to Fight Racism. He is the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on? Yeah, you better pub that book, boy. <laughs> <laughs> we all we got. We all we got. I ain't saying. I ain't saying. Listen, um, yo, Tyler, thank you so much for hosting this conversation. If y'all have listened to Pass the Mic, you know that Tyler Burns is the host extraordinaire. He's got a great conversation lined up. And I am so thankful to all the guests who have joined us on this very important topic. And thank you for carving out some time on a Friday night uh, to, as we record this live to, to talk about this very important topic of the black church. And it ain't just about the documentary, y'all. It's about uh, this arc of refuge that has been home and shelter for so many of us. So I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Awesome. Well, uh, following Jamar, we have the vice president of The Witness BCC, the host of the Combing the Roots podcast, a brilliant scholar and also an incisive commentator. She holds an MDiv from Fuller Theological Seminary. I think she also got like a 5.8 GPA or something like that. Of course, I'm talking about Ali Henny. Ali, how you doing tonight? I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit mad at Tyler because he scheduled this during the time that I usually watch Wandavision. Oh no, he knows that I watch Wandavision at this time. So, but it's okay. I'm doing, I'm doing it for the culture. I'm doing it for the Black Church, and I am so excited to be here. Well, awesome. We're excited to have you. Following Ali is someone who is no stranger to the witness. Of course, we are talking about the, the founder and executive director of Soulfire International Ministry. She was also um, an incredible keynote speaker for our first national conference, the Joy and Justice Conference in Chicago. She has so many degrees and accolades. I, it would take us all night to list them all. And of course, I'm talking about Dr. Nicole Massey-Martin. Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Tyler. Man, those intros make me want to like run out with music playing like, yeah, we're talking tonight. <laughs> Next time I'm going to do a hype video for everybody. I know, right? And then that. we can like dance while you're doing it. And then, talk. yeah, that'd be great. See, we're on the same page. We're on the same page. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to hear what you have to say. Um, and then finally, last but not least, certainly not least, um, longtime board member of The Witness, when you talk about Black church and you talk about Black church commentary, it is criminal to leave out the voice and the contribution of the Reverend Dr. C.J. Rhodes, the senior pastor of the historic Mount Helm Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Dr. Rhodes, it is our honor to have you here. And I know you're going to add so much value to this conversation. Thank you for the introduction, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be with you and Jamar, Ali, and Nicole. And uh, looking forward to this Awesome conversation, the witness style. I think it's gonna be a great, great uh, dialogue tonight. Well, let's get into it, y'all. Y'all good with it? Let's get into it. We are obviously talking about the Black Church documentary on PBS, and this was in two parts. It played on Tuesday night and Wednesday evening, and it set Twitter and Facebook afire um, in positive and negative ways. It was polarizing. There were a lot of different views about it. But, but I want to approach this from a general perspective because I have no idea what y'all think. I have no idea. I have a little idea what maybe Ali thinks, but everybody else, I'm not exactly sure where you land on this documentary. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a test and I'm going to give you a test to give two words. Okay. The first word 
is a word to describe the dominant emotion that you approach the documentary with, whether that was excited, hopeful, eager, inspired, ready to learn, satisfied, all, whatever it may be. And then I want you to give me one word that describes your dominant emotion after you watch the documentary. So give me a before emotion and an after emotion. That could be um, happy and then finally unsatisfied or excited, then inspired, whatever it may be. I'm curious, what was your dominant emotion? Let's start with Jamar. Going into it, I felt relief. Coming out of it, I feel hungry. Hmm. Allie, hop in. Going into it, I felt pumped. Coming out of it, I felt, I think that you used an adequate word, unsatisfied. Hmm. Dr. Martin. Hmm. Okay. Going in, I felt hesitant. Um, coming out of it, I felt, oh, I, I love that word hungry. I was thinking of longing, like I wanted something more. Yeah. Hmm. And Dr. Rhodes. Yeah, I'll echo what's been said. I think prior to, I was excited during it. I was proud. Afterward, I was a little dissatisfied with the parts that were left out uh, or some of the things that were misrepresented. So, yeah. Okay, so this could have gone two ways. Y'all could have given me some regular answers, but y'all gave me <laughs> deep, insightful answers. So now you got to tell me why. Let's go in reverse order here. Dr. Rhodes, tell me why you left feeling dissatisfied and tell me about the emotion of pride that you were feeling while you were watching it. We'll kind of go in reverse order from that. <laughs> Sure. So dissatisfied, not meaning that I felt the whole uh, documentary was uh, awful. I thought it was a good documentary. I think uh, we are thankful to have it. But the way that that the story was told, it was trying to compress about 400 years in four less than four hours. And at certain points, we just kind of jumping all over the place. And it missed what I thought to be very kind of rudimentary things you got to discuss when you're talking about the black church. Got to define sort of the institutional uh, piece and, you know, who's in, who's out. Let's have that debate. Right. Um, there were certain key moments where you felt like they should have done more um, on certain subjects, less on certain subjects. So it just seemed that though it was a wonderful uh, film overall, uh, like Jamar, you know, I felt, uh, you know, I think it was a good start for a lot of people, it made us hungry for more. But on the other hand, I felt like they could have done certain things better in the presentation, uh, given the fact they only have four hours and they have you know, so many people who probably for the first time were being introduced to the black church. Hmm, that's very helpful. Dr. Martin. Yeah. So I felt hesitant coming in because I did I intentionally didn't read or kind of study up on what the process was building up to the documentary. Uh, I always wonder when when documentaries like these are made, who's the primary audience? Am I the audience as a black churchgoer? Will I go into this feeling like my story is adequately told or is this for a white audience so that people can get to understand and, and know the nuances of the black church? Will my voice be dominant or will there be other experts that are dominant telling my story? And because I've seen the ups and the downs in previous iterations that try to describe our experience, I was hesitant. I didn't wanna fully endorse it and get all excited about it. I just didn't know what to expect. When I got into it, I mean, I, I felt this deep longing. I miss church so much. 
I miss the songs. I miss, you know, the person next to me that I could slap high five with eight times during the sermon. I, I missed it so much. So part of my longing was personal. I just miss being in the in the community with the saints. And I, as I was watching it, I was thinking the black church has meant so much through the years, but it it would have meant so much during this pandemic. Like I need, I need to be in a place where I can hold somebody, you know, while they shout. I need to, I need to be in a place where we can all come to the altar and then church is over, but we still linger. I missed that so much. So it made me a bit emotional because I was like, Lord Jesus, please let us come back to worship. But the other longing part of it is, um, uh, again, what what uh, Pastor CJ mentioned. I, I didn't want, I didn't expect everything would be packed in. I mean, a, a documentary on the Black Church should be eighteen volumes. I think the challenge is our narrative, our history is oral, and it's all about the story and the storytellers. So I found myself like midway through the first part making my checklist. Okay, good. You got his voice. Okay, you got her voice. Okay, good. But then I was like, well, where's such and such's voice? It ain't real if it ain't such and such's voice on there. So that's why I was like, I, I was longing for more. And I want I want to read the B-roll. I want to watch the B-roll and see the interviews. Um, but I, I just want more. And I think that's a positive thing. So I I went into it with some hesitancy. My 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 verb was what my word was pumped. Um, but I shared I, I definitely shared um, some some of uh, Nicole's some sentiments here where it was just like, ooh, who's gonna who's who's it really gonna represent? What is it really gonna be? But I was but I was pumped for it because I'm like it's a it's a PBS documentary, and so I think that I went into it expecting eyes on the prize. Um, I think that I went into, I, I, I expected it maybe to be a black church version of, of eyes on the prize, um, obviously covering more, more history. Um, I, I think I went into it, not again, expecting necessarily a Ken Burns style documentary, but Ken Burns documentaries, if you're not familiar, they are just, they're, they're so in depth. They're so, they're so rich. And so I was expecting that. And so whenever I, it was only two nights, I was like, okay, I'm maybe not going to get get that, but there's going to be, but but there's going to be some some depth to it, and so I felt like that it started off strong. I felt like that you know um, whenever we start talking about slavery history and stuff, there's it's a lot of the same story over again. It's a lot of the same stories of of oppression, and not that those individual stories don't matter, um, but it was like it started off really really strong, and then it got to after the Civil War, and then it was like after the Civil War, blah blah blah. blah Azusa Street VN. And I was like, what, what just, what, what just, right, what right. just happened? And I'll get into, into some more of my thoughts on that, on that later. But it was just like, it was like, what happened? And so then the second part again, like, you know, um, the, the jumping around, like just some of the different, the, some of the different things that I say that it left me, it left me unsatisfied. Um, and it left me unsatisfied. Not, I, I felt, I felt proud. I shared those sentiments um, that, that I, I felt, I felt proud that this is, this is something that, that was being created by us in some ways and for us but I I just I just felt unsatisfied because I felt like you know it, it could have been 18 volumes that we should have we should have gotten three nights we should have at least gotten three nights if not if not four because there was just a lot of a lot of stories that were not done adequate service I echo a lot of sentiments that have been shared I said going in my feeling was relief 
relief because finally we have a documentary on this topic, right? So, so Henry Louis Gates Jr. is prolific in this space in, in terms of doing documentaries, particularly focused on black experiences. I think he's uh, most recently well known for the African-Americans, many rivers to cross. And it just felt like a natural, you know, next subject to talk about the black church, because within the black experience it's the black church that has been consistent is the black church. That is the through line for all of this, which actually sort of sets up the documentary to be controversial, unsatisfying, all of that stuff. Because, you know, my one profound insight as an academic historian was this, that any black person who has any connection to the black church has an opinion about the black church. And so it's one of those things where you are never, ever, you know, please or satisfied. But that's partly the point, right? So so my, my exiting feeling was hungry. And what I appreciated about the documentary, what I think it sets up well is precisely what left people wanting more was the diversity and the complexity of the black church. Right. So we use this term, the black church. It's shorthand. And anybody who has any connection to the black church at all knows we we have so many branches, so many tangled roots. It, it, you know, it, it is it is. One church is different from the next, different than the next, the denominations, all of that stuff. And all of that matters. And so I came out hungry. There were some quibbles I had. The timeline was a little bit difficult to follow in, in it. Uh, there were some notable um, gaps out there. I was pleased in general with the, the voices they had to speak to it. These are some of the scholars um, that I've cited in my books that I've learned a lot from. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, what I think the overarching impression is, and this isn't necessarily a failure on the documentary's part, it could be a success, is that there's so much more to the story. And that's why I left hungry. It's like, I'm ready for that more to the story. You know, there, 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 there needs to be a documentary on Pentecostals and Charismatics. There needs to be a documentary on Baptists. There needs Come to be on a documentary now. on, uh, uh, you know, black Christians in white spaces, on Presbyterians and Methodists and all of that stuff. And deservedly so, because it's that important to our nation, to our history. Yeah. So let me say this before we keep going. Uh, we're going to get into a lot of the comments that are being shared on Facebook, but go ahead and share this broadcast, please. OK, share this broadcast. It's already been fire. Now, let me make a, a little bit of a left turn here because I I have some questions listed out for everyone, but I've given one, given everyone a chance to talk now. Let's open up the floor a little bit. Let's talk about what we appreciated about this documentary and specifically what was there a story that was kind of the signature of the documentary that marked and made it memorable for you. And I'm going to open this up to the panelists, hop in, get in where you fit in and let's share one story or, you know, everyone doesn't have to share, but let's share one story that you felt really made you proud and really was done well within the context of the documentary. Well, I'll jump in. There were, there were a number of stories um, that really stirred me, but mine was less of a story, more of a moment. First of all, in response to the first question, 
I really did appreciate the intentional expansion of the, the storytellers. I loved that we had so many women represented that were speaking to the experience of the Black church. I loved that. Um, I loved hearing um, the, the variety of musicians and artists from B.B. Winans to, uh, you know, um, all of them. All of them were wonderful. But there was this one moment. And again, it might be just because I was nostalgic and I miss my church and I'm thinking about, you know, I think I was doing what every Black church American was doing, like, yep, that was my story. Yep, that was what my grandmama did. You know, I, I was going through my own lineage. But when we got to Dr. Martha Simmons and she started hooping and then Hello. we went from her to Shirley Caesar, who child almost went in. I texted my friend, I said, let me tell you something. I was listening to this as a scholar and then I almost went in because there was, you know, there is, there's something about this rhythmic quality of preaching that matches with song. And I think, you know, it was almost overemphasized in the second portion, this connection with music and preaching, but it did something to my soul. I was like, this is my heart language. My heart language is amazing grace. My heart language is hearing a preacher line it to the end, you know? Um, so that that moment just really, it was very nostalgic. It was very beautiful. And I just loved that these were women's voices that ironically aren't often heard in our churches, but were so prominent in the documentary. Yeah, I would I would reiterate that I enjoyed, enjoyed the documentary on, on the whole, uh, whatever issues I may have with it. Uh, there are so many wonderful stories in it. I think the one that I liked that sort of leaped out at me was the story of the Great Migration. And, you know, being from Mississippi and, and you know, knowing we got cousins in, in Chicago and, and all those wonderful places, but how they interrogated this notion that the North and the Midwest were indeed the promised land, right? That when they got to the North and Midwest, they experienced uh, not just racism for white folk, but classism from black folks. And that's often overlooked, right? That there still today is classism in the black church around worship styles, preaching styles, educational achievements, et cetera. And I think a lot of that narrative about the great migration can't be told without the, the ways that the black church had to navigate that, the emergence of of, of black nationalist groups, you know, the Temple of Moorish Science, Nation of Islam, in these urban northern uh, and midwestern spaces. And a lot of what we're talking about today, right, in terms of the culture of black churches and black churches vis-a-vis -vis various uh, movements, black identity movements, goes way back to the 1930s and 40s. And I think a lot of times we miss that that's the historical antecedent uh, to the present moment. Go ahead, Alec. Um, I was just going to say the the stories that kind of impacted me maybe the most in it were some of the stories of the people who got put out the church. And so in the second part, um, the um, Bishop um, Yvette Flunder, they, that she pastors City of Refuge um, UCC in Los Angeles, talking about how she's a queer Christian and she had gotten put out the church as she talked about how all these other people that she that she knew, people who were who were music artists, people who were different, different people who were who were popular 
it's like this person had this person had roots in the church and that seemed to be particularly in the second part um a very common thread and of course it seemed like they were emphasizing the the pentecostals came people out of their out of their churches i guess we had we had to be the ones that were that were acting up (laughs) acting up and disfellowshipping people Uh, but they but but that that seemed to be a, a common thread after after slavery, there were people who who felt their their root. Their, they brought their church roots into the world, and then it wasn't the world that rejected them; it was the church. Or they brought different parts of themselves, different parts of their identity that they that they were living into, and it wasn't the world that rejected them; it was the church. And so that was something that I thought was, um, especially in watching some of the conversation on Twitter and looking and seeing people who have had very similar experiences experiences wondering and during on the first night if people were going to if they were going to talk about it and then on the second night it being talked about and seeing some of and seeing some of the reaction and stuff with people and I felt like that um it gave the opportunity we could we could talk about the, the merits of how certain certain topics and stuff were treated whatever how how fair maybe they fair or unfair they were um to certain parties but I think that the fact that it that 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 include that that was included um, was important. I think that some of the some of the treatment of some of these stories was perfunctory and was like kind of like oh hey here we're gonna we're gonna talk about these people's stories because like whatever and it, and and I don't think I think that it could have been treated that there's aspects that could have been treated with maybe a little bit more care and a little bit more intention. But I liked that they did include those stories because I think that um, regardless of what the of what the issue or circumstance is, a lot of us probably know people who got put out the church, and whether that was whether that was for um, who they who they decided to marry, whether that was because of they, them stealing money, whether it was because of whatever, like they, people having illicit relationships, like whatever it was, we've all we've all known those stories, and so it was like, oh, okay, this is good that they're that they're representing that aspect of, of our culture. Yeah, and just briefly, one thing that stuck out to me, uh, I was live tweeting on the first night, and um, Yolanda Pierce, the dean of the Howard University School of Divinity, had a quote in in there that I just thought was so illustrative. And she said, African-Americans adopted Christianity, but they also adapted Christianity. They made it their own. And to me, that gets at so much of the essence of the black church. It's not the sum total, but it's, it's, it's a lot of the black church experience in the United States, because as the documentary traced, um, the, the emergence of the black church, it wasn't primarily over theological differences. Although if you really wanted to drill down, I'd say, you know, there's a way you can say it was over theological, like theological anthropology or, or different things of that nature. Um, but it was about being treated as second-class citizens in the household of God, which is not how God set it up, right? And, and so there's this constant question, how can a people adopt the religion of their oppressors? It's because we didn't adopt it wholesale. We adapted it. We heard the truth of the gospel within it. We heard the the, the liberatory strings of uh, the book of Exodus and throughout the Bible. And we knew that applied to us as a people. And we knew in our souls, because it was the Holy Spirit speaking to us, that what these white folk were saying was true, wasn't the whole story. And we were able to adopt and adapt that and make it our own such that the black church, and this is why I think it elicits such 
powerful feelings, a documentary like this, is because of all the institutions, of all the cultural touch points, of, of all the organization, the Black church is sort of uniquely our own. And so it, we, we're almost protective of it, as well as it's very personal. You know, we all have these, these personal connections to it. So it was a quote like that that stuck out to me. And to that point that Jamar made, I felt like the first part of the documentary especially made the case for why black people still continue to worship Jesus is because we were because, you know, people talk about, well, why like why would you worship that slaveholder Jesus It's like the, the Jesus that I worship was the slaveholder. He was the enslaved. He wasn't the colonizer. He was the colonized. And so the hope that I have this in the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't based on master slave dynamics is based is based on God loving me and God seeing me where I was in the pit and pulling me out. And that's that's why I that's why I love Jesus. And so I feel like that. Um, the documentary was able to, if you were, if you were looking, if you knew, if you were listening to what the message was, especially in that first part, they were illustrating how the black church, they were sitting in the, they were sitting in the pews in the, with, with white people or sitting in the back of the church or sitting up, standing up in the balcony or whatever with the white people. And then as soon as that slaveholder holder religion started to take hold, they was having church other places. And so it was like, yes, they were part of the institution. And that's maybe where they where they learned and heard some of the stories. Um, because you hear about even in, in the in the first part of the documentary, it talks about um some people who they they came and they and they participated in Islam. That was that was their religion. And that and there actually was a testimony that they shared um that, that they had an actor um reenact of a person who was like, well, well, I I decided I want to become Christian because I heard these people praying. And so you you have people have having a conscious conversion like yes it was yes it was the religion of the empire yes it was the religion of like whatever but you have people having conscious conversions recognizing that the god that these people are preaching in their little pulpits isn't the god that i'm encountering in the cotton field and so i think that that's something that is that's a very important point to to know yeah, and can I jump in there? And I think Ali spot on, and I, I love Jamar bringing up Dr. Pierce's quote. I thought that was the money shot for, for me uh, because what it does is actually demonstrates that the notion that Black folk just uh, took on the white, white man's religion is itself a logic of white supremacy because it denies the Come agency on. of Black folk who consciously and creatively engage the faith. Right. It wasn't just, oh, yeah, master, I'm going to accept your Jesus. It was like, you know, what, what Fred, uh, Fred, Frederick Douglass said, right, that that the religion of Jesus and what we're seeing in America are not one and the same. They understood the difference. They understood. Wait a minute. This Bible they gave us to preach from doesn't have Exodus in it. This one over here does. Let's read Exodus. Right. So it, it helps us recognize that these were intelligent, spiritual people who, uh, particularly during the Great Awakenings, who came to an awakening faith uh, in Jesus, or as has been increasingly uh, made known, many were already exposed to Christianity in Africa, right? Christianity itself is an African religion. Let's get that straight. And, and so the influences of Africa, you see this really not so much in the film, but in the 1890s or, or whatnot, this Ethiopianism that's emerging, where people recognizing this connection 
to Christian Ethiopia because there's a Christian king in Ethiopia in the 1890s who, by the way, was about to be punked by the Italians. So there's just so much going on. And I think we have to demonstrate that, that this notion that Black folk just took the white man's religion is actually itself illogical white supremacy that presumes that our enslaved ancestors and, and, and uh, generations thereafter were just these ignorant, bumbling fools that just sheepishly accepted something uh, for any numbers of reasons. And I think that just isn't uh, true to form. Now, y'all about to take me to church. Okay, so let me let me hop in. And because I, I want I don't want to leave something that y'all said out before this question. Because I think everyone is asking this question, if things were left out, if you felt like you were dissatisfied, despite the good things that were mentioned, what was left out? Who was left out? Who was missing? Now, as Pentecostal, I have strong feelings about some of the people who are missing. Um, but I want to kick it to you specifically. Let me go back to Dr. Rhodes. Dr. Rhodes, who is missing? And then Dr. Martin, if you'll hop in after that as well. So I'm going to say one person was missing and one story they didn't tell right. Okay. William J. Seymour, you can't talk about Black Pentecostalism and skip over the father of Black Pentecostalism. Come on, I, mean, I love Mason, right? But watch this. Mason goes to Azusa after Seymour has already started it off. Now, there's some prior relationships there. But, but you know, before Mason gets to Los Angeles, he is still more so in the holiness camp and accepts this, you know, the doctrine of, of, of tongues, et cetera, through, through Seymour. And I, th- I think it's so important because Seymour and Afro-Pentecostalism in particular, to distinguish it from other forms of Pentecostalism, is, is actually, honestly, the most prominent form of Black Christianity today in both Pentecostal denominations and outside. Even the Sidini silk stocking Black folk are doing praise breaks now. Hello, somebody. And, and, and that's, that's a large thanks to, to Seymour and Mason and others. Now, the telling of the Mason piece, though, was inaccurate. And I want to you know, just go on record. It said that Mason did this after he was kicked out of the Baptist church. But Mason and his colleague C.P. Jones, Charles, Harrison, uh, Charles Price Jones, founded the Church of God in Christ while they were still connected to Mount Helm Baptist Church, where I pastor, by the way. It was only around 1901 or so when they, they, they leave fully, right? So Kojic, if you will, e- emerges as a Baptist reform movement. And I would argue what, what makes Mason genius, as well as Jones, is that he's really retrieving practices of Black Christianity that had been dismissed and abandoned by the so-called progressives, right? So people like Elias Camp Morris, uh, the first president of the National Baptist Convention, calls certain practices heathenism. We see it in Black Delta religion, whether it's Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal. Shouting, falling out, we called it back home, catching the Holy Ghost. Those were things that the progressives said, get rid of that. We don't want to do that stuff. That's uncouth. You know, we want white people to accept us. And Mason said, no, we don't want these white people's religion. It's, it's dead. It's dry. We want... We want what our ancestors had. And so dance, drum, et cetera, are retrieved from Afro-Christian history and preserved and, 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 and um, adapted in Afro-Pentecostalism. And so the fact that we missed that piece of the story, Seymour, uh, Mason, what they were wrestling with, it seemed like a very missed opportunity. And it, to me, it's not a, you know, they don't have enough time to say it. You just don't skip over Seymour. We talk about <laughs> the black church. I mean, teach I'm sorry. Doc. I just can't teach. Just, 
goodness. You better call that roll. Ooh. That quick in my spirit, wherever you sit. <laughs> Come like, on, let me, let me have a praise break up in here. Dr. Martin, hop in, this, hop in on this. Who was yeah. missing? What was missing? So maybe we go to the other spectrum of what may be missing. I, I want to hang on to, I feel like this whole conversation could be about the Black church as an act of resistance, as not taking on someone else's anything, but adapting. I think Raphael Warnock said it best in his book, you know, The Divided Mind of the Black Church, that this was this was a form of resistance. This was a revolution started within the Black church to own and preserve and adapt something of our own. At the same time, I always want to uh, save a space in the narrative of the Black church for those who did decide to do that reformation work within existing denominations. There are Black Presbyterian churches that if you walked in the door, you would think it was a Pentecostal church. I want their story to be told. There are Black Methodist churches, not AME or Amy Zion. There are Black Methodist churches that are within United Methodist uh, institutions, that are within Lutheran institutions, that are even Episcopal. We had one Episcopal voice in there, which I thought was great. But I mean, I, I wanted I wanted this mirror reflection that the Black church is not a monolithic denomination. It's, it's this broad expanse. Now, as a Baptist, now my daddy is a Baptist pastor. I wanted to see more of this split of the National Baptist and the Progressive Baptist. I'm like, that is, that's like every Baptist needs to know that story. Were you with King or not? <laughs> and if you weren't, you know, and are we are we talking about National Baptist of America? Are we talking pro Progressive? That is a dynamic story. And I wanted to hear and see more of that, but I knew that was from my own vantage point. So, you know, I, I'm I I'm not, you know, I'm not the, the historian in that sense, but I know from my varied experience, I want my friends, white and black, to watch this documentary and say, oh, y'all are so different. You're all so different. And yet, oh, everybody has some kind of, you know, resistance narrative that is informed even their reading of scripture, which I think we could have elevated even more. You know, and Dr. Martin, I'm so glad you mentioned history because let me take this to Jamar. Jamar, you're a historian, and I know you love you some Dr. Henry Louis Gates. I know you love <laughs> this. But if what do you think about this scholarly approach, the, the academy versus the sanctuary? Can you talk a little bit about the, the narratives of the academy and that survive and the prevailing thought process of the academy, the lean of the academy? Mm. which in, in and of itself is problematic to just say the academy, just like the black church, it, right, what right, academy right. are you talking about, right? But the in general, this this academic scholarly view versus the, the sanctuary, because it seems as though Dr. Rhodes is telling the academic story, but from the underside, he's telling it from the sanctuary. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about this, this separation? Yeah, if, if I'm understanding your question correctly, at least I'll interpret it uh, as I understand it, is um, there is an academic Black church history and an academic Black church theology. One of the misconceptions, I think, um, that, that the, the documentary didn't quite tease out was the idea that all black church traditions or all black church theology is what would fall under the academic label of black liberation theology. And, and, and I say that not in the sense that all black theology doesn't have liberation themes in it, 
I'm talking about the formal discipline of black liberation theology, which is most commonly attributed to James Cone as sort of, um, you know, the, the, the modern wellspring of that in the late 60s with his church, black, black theology, black power, right? Um, that sort of academic study of theology from a black perspective, this idea that, you know, Jesus is black, right? Which, which, which we saw in the documentary, uh, I believe it was Henry McNeil Turner said, you know, Jesus is a Negro, right? This isn't new stuff, but he did it from the perch of the academy, which was historically closed to black people. And so what we find, you talk about in the sanctuary or in the pew, is a folk religion. That is a religion of the common people. So, so I live in the Delta, right? And, and, and when I went to a New Light Missionary Baptist Church, we met in an abandoned warehouse with an unfinished concrete floor and folding metal chairs and no instruments and no youth group. And all we had was the Bible and the spirit. And that religion tends to be or can be very different from the religion as described and codified in the academy. In a perfect illustration, James Cone's own brother, Cecil Cone, basically wrote a book like disagreeing with, with his brother. And they were born and raised in the same church in Arkansas and where Cecil Cone lived out his uh, in, in entire days. And so th there is this breadth of black theology. And there can be, if you are a student of these things, uh, a perception that all black theology is what we would call black liberation theology. And that can sometimes look very different from the, the, the folk religion of many black people. And don't get me started on the religion of Fannie Lou Hamer and others in, in that strain. So I do think it's important to tease out those differences. Well, let me let me get in my bag a little bit here. Um, I, I'm gonna I, I'm not a scholar like y'all, but but my first love is philosophy. And as I was thinking about the black church, the entire approach, even in part two of this documentary, treated the black church like it was a relic, and like it was a relic to be preserved and protected. But my question is, should the relic be reformed and restored? And let me, let me put it like this. So there is a philosophical um, a thought experiment that we used to do in college when I was studying philosophy. It's called the ship of Theseus. And the idea is Theseus was this great warrior and he has a ship that he uses to win many great battles and conquests, right? So stay with me. So Theseus, once he passes on, his ship remains in the harbor as a, as a museum you know, kind of uh, relic or something that people can look to and say, this is a great ship. Now over time, because it sits there, the wood starts to rot. And so they start to replace boards and they start to redesign and restore and refurbish the ship. And the crux of the thought experiment is at what point in the restoration does the ship no longer become the ownership of Theseus because it has new ownership? And at what point is the restoration changing the original intent? And I feel like we treat the Black church like a relic, but not something that needs to be reformed, restored, and developed. So let me ask you all this question. Thank you for humoring me. Let me ask you all this question. Why does it seem like we are unable 
to develop, restore, and adapt as the Black church? Or is that a myth? Have we restored? And are the things we're restoring, we're just not calling it the Black church because it looks different than how it was formed? This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Well, I'll, I was waiting for Allie to, to jump in there, but <laughs> so that. No, I'm cool. <laughs> let me let me kind of pick up where Jamar ended and, and, and jump up to you, Tyler. I absolutely agree with with Jamar. I think one of the problems in much of the scholarship of the Black Church in many academies is that it's purely social, scientific, and in many ways romantic. Oh, back before King and during King's time, the Black Church was this liberative, justice-loving institution that fought for the people. And after King was assassinated, it fell in disarray. And now it's all about pimps and prosperity, right? That's sort of the, the narrative. And, you know, and, and that kind of gets repeated in popular culture, you know, the Greenleaf uh, uh, series and, you know, all of that. And, um, and I think it misses, that narrative misses that, one, the Black Church has always been uh, complicated, as Dr. Martin pointed out. We've always been a divergent and diverse a group of folks. Um, and there's always been pockets of reform. So we think about, <laughs> I love Greenleaf, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, we think about the Church of God in Christ. It emerges as a reform movement uh, among Baptists, right? So, you know, when it comes to the Black church then, I, I you know, someone asked me actually earlier, you know, I said, I don't like that, you know, the BKAK uh, demarcation before King, after King. I just Talk think it's it. erroneous. So well, how would you define it up? I said, I would just maybe just think about historical moments, you know, antebellum, reconstruction, post-reconstruction, et cetera. And in, in each of those moments, you see there being these shifts and these changes and there are ways in which black churches are very different today than they were before. Now to get to your question, uh, Tyler, I think we have to, particularly in scholarship, have to wrestle with can, you know, not just what Dr. Martin said about, you know, the reality of Black Catholics and Black Methodists and Black Presbyterians, but how do you situate the potter's house? How do you situate churches that have no connection to historical Black denominations or or, or they don't any longer? Um, you know, can you sing CCM and still be a Black church? Can you be engaged more in community development versus justice advocacy and still be a Black church? And so the scholars are often debating about who's in and who's out. But if you walk into X church with a bunch of black folk in it or X church with a bunch of different colors of people in it, there are going to be certain elements that we must begin to identify as this resonates with me because it feels like elements of the black church. Um, and I think to your point about relic versus reform, there are a lot of people who have this notion that the black church must look a certain way 
and do a certain thing a certain way. And if it doesn't do that, it's not truly the black church. I just, I don't think the history itself though allows for that narrative because the black church has always been evolving. There were times when we didn't have buildings. There are times when we did. There were times when we had buildings that were made of wood and then made of brick. And when we had pulpits, when we didn't have pulpits. Um, I'll close with this. I think, um, uh, you know, areas where I think the church does need reform uh, is around its spirituality. I think we need to address the whole women issue in a lot of our churches, um, the age issue, uh, because I am convinced, I'll close with this, I am convinced that the debates about reform and relic aren't happening among the younger churches. It's the older, the hundred year old church in the urban community or the rural community that still wants to do it the way they did it when great grandmama was around and all the young people have gone off to these other churches. And let's, and let's not, let's not forget there are a lot of young black folk going off to white mega churches and multi-ethnic churches now that are really becoming a, a controversy for black churches. And so we have to engage that. And I think that's work that not only scholars, scholars do, but practitioners on the ground have to do as well. So I'll say to that point, to the to the point of like the relic, I think that there's that there's a lot that that Dr. Rhodes brought up that is really important here. I would even make the argument that I don't think that I think that the black church doesn't really exist. And what I mean by that is the relic of the black church, what we, the, this, this thing that we kind of have created, this, this mythos, this thing that we, that we want to protect this, this idea, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't really exist. Um, even, even the churches in which, you know, we want to do things just like, you know, grandmama's church did it, just like great grandma church did it. Those things have evolved and changed over time. I am now a black Episcopalian. I, I grew up in a Baptist tradition, um, was a, was Pentecostal through through my um, teenage years and most of my and most of my adult life. And then I was recently confirmed in in the Episcopal tradition. So I um, actually attend a black Episcopal church. Actually attend the mother church for African-American Episcopalians in my city. And even, it, so so this church is, is you know, 100 plus, I can't remember how many, I think 146, 47 years old or whatever. And so, you know, these are these are questions, some of these are questions that, that my congregation is asking, but at the same, but at the same time, and you know, I'm a part of a, a tradition now that, that is, you know, very, very, that is traditional, that there are kind of, there's a, there's a way that things have been done, so on and so on and so forth. But at the same time, the church has still evolved. This, this, you know, this hundred year old institution, maybe it's just done it at a slower pace, but it's still changed. It's still, it's still evolved. The building has changed. The music style has changed. Different things have changed. So I feel like that, that this, that even the idea of the relic and reform, I think that there's that, um, that I don't think that the relic actually really exists. And sometimes I even, sometimes there's a, there's a saying that the past remembers better than it lived. And that's not to say that the, that the religion, that the things that, that were handed down to us, that those things are somehow fake and somehow not real, but, but the past remembered better than it, than it lives. So whenever we start to address then what is somewhat, what has been an exodus for, for like some of the millennial generation and then especially Gen X to a small extent, millennials to an extent. And then we even see with research coming out, Gen Z to a greater extent from the quote unquote black church in favor of some of these white mega churches. I think that we have to, that, that, that we have to ask ourselves, why is that? 
But at the same time, I think that we can't ignore the fact that the black church still does exist and that there still are millennials and Gen Zers that are in these that that are in these black churches. And there, there's a whole lot more that that could that could be said about that. But I think that those that, that I just that, that I don't want to necessarily challenge the assumption of the question, but I just wonder, like, what? What is it that why 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 is it that we think that this is a relic? What is it that we think that the black that the black church actually is? Yeah, no, please challenge the assumption of the question, please. That's why we're here. So yes, <laughs> go ahead, Dr. Martin. Yeah, this is such a great conversation. I um so I've been kind of like uh, tracking along with the state of the black church research that's being done by Barna American Bible Society is a part of that, and what they found is overall. Most Black Americans, not just Christians, most Black Americans still believe that the Black church is a desirable place to be. But this is steadily on decline. So in 1996, it was like 90% of all Black Americans felt like the church is a desirable place to be. And now we're at about 74%. So still over 50%, but 74%. And then, Ali, to your point, as you go through the generations, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the group that favors the Black church right now the most are baby boomers. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I cannot ignore the fact that we are in a defining moment right now. I mean, this is the moment for the black church, for all of church, church capital C, but especially the black church to be redefined. We, when I was watching that, that little portion they had on Reverend Ike, you know, it was like a little laughable at first, like, oh, I can't believe we fell for that. But then you start watching more and you're like, this is this is what we this is what we've begun to embody. We may outwardly condemn a prosperity gospel, but we embody it in other ways. So now now we've got a moment to redefine. Do we define the black church by what is posted on uh, social media because we can't gather? So are we defining the black church by the black pastor and the message of the pastor? Are we defining the black church by the togetherness? So I miss church because I miss being together. Are we defining the black church by a black experience? I heard Cornell West say once, as long as there is oppression in the world, there will always be a need for the black church. So are we defining ourselves by a counter narrative? There's oppression out there. So therefore, I must find safety in here. I think this pandemic is going to push us to redefine what it means to be church, what it means to be Christian, and also what it means to lead institutions like these. And I say lead, not just pastor, but lead in providing healing, lead in incubating businesses, lead in helping younger generations to expand the imagination of the nonprofit religious sector. We have now the opportunity to create more faith-based nonprofits than ever before. And that might be another trajectory of the church. But if we hang on to what I long for, you know, the, the collective experience that made me feel more like me, then yeah, it is a relic. I just wonder in this storm that that arguably, I mean, there's 101 different theologies on why are we in pandemic right now? Why COVID? The fact is we're in it. So what are we gonna do about it? And prayerfully, when we get back in those doors in the name of Jesus, when we get back in those doors, when we get back in the pulpit, who will we be for that society? That PTSD society, that society of young children who are trying to figure out how to get together and be with someone again. Who will we be? And I pray that we will be an answer. We will be that bomb. We will be uh, a new brand of witness for a new season. But I also wonder, because I don't know, I don't know if every church is willing to change and adapt. I don't know if if fear causes us to just hang on to what's always been. I'm just going to preach my sermon like I've always preached it and just do it on the screen instead of, you know, 
maybe adapting to really reach people where they are. There's a lot. Wow, Dr. Martin. Go ahead, Jamar. I know you want to hop in. This wow. is exactly why we have <laughs> this group of panelists here. And Dr. Martin, I feel like we're vibing on the same page. Um, in terms of the, the relic and the reform, I do have a sense that we have this image of the Black church that's sort of frozen in amber, namely during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And so we're looking for the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta to be the site of the mass meeting, to inspire people before they go out and do the march and face the fire hoses and the police dogs and things of that nature. That was true, but as the documentary highlighted, that was true for a minority even of Black churches, right? So, so we need to sort of adjust our lens here. And then I do think that, as, as Dr. Rhodes mentioned, um, the Black church is always evolving. And as, as Ali mentioned, you know, the relic that we think is there may be mythical in the sense that it was always in flux. You know, it's always a moving target to define the Black church, right? And so what Dr. Martin is bringing up, what does prophetic Black church look like today? And I think that has to be updated and revised for the 21st century, right? That has to be, because people always say history repeats itself. No, it doesn't. History rhymes, history echoes, but it's always contextual, right? So, so what we're facing with the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol is religious in nature in the sense that you have white supremacist Christian nationalism on display, which is the challenge we face today, which is different from the challenge of uh, Jim Crow segregation, which is the different, different from the challenge of abolition, right? So, so, so then what does the movement look like? And one of the things that I say is, you know, one of the difference between the movement in the 50s and 60s, by, by the way, this is what I study and research, Christianity didn't go away, the black church didn't go away during the black power movement either. Right. That's a, a myth that people have. But one of the things I say is that, you know, one of the difference between what activism, faith based activism looks like in the 50s and 60s versus the 2010s and 20s is look for more individuals acting as the church, as the people of God and not just institutions. So it might not be the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that's sponsoring the march. But it might be a whole bunch of black pastors and black church members who are marching. It might not be the mass meeting in the church sanctuary. It's on a Zoom call or on Twitter with a hashtag that we unite around. And, and, and I think this is such a crucial point. You think of somebody like Brie Newsom, who is an artist and an activist and a community organizer. She took down the Confederate flag in front of the uh, State House of South Carolina after the Emanuel Nine Massacre. Because black people have to die, apparently, for white people to change a lot of times. She said this at the top of the flagpole that people forget. She said this, in the name of Jesus, this flag has to come down. You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. That's the kind of activism, that's the kind of lens that we have to look for as far as what it looks like today. And that's the kind of study and research and work we need to put into to say what does putting our faith into works look like for the 21st century. 
Can I just inter interject? I, I think that was a brilliant point. And I, one of the other things we have to note in terms of those previous times is that different technologies and different assumptions about what leadership looked like existed. So when people talk about where is Dr. King today, one, he wasn't the only person doing that kind of work back then. There were people before him, his own grandfather, his own dad, right? He just happened to have a lot of airtime. <laughs> he was brilliant. He was articulate, but he came along in the age of television. Okay. I mean, that was one of the major things, right? I mean, they dramatized the civil rights movement in the South largely because now television crews can come in and broadcast beatings and whatnot to a national audience in the midst of a Cold War, right? So the Russians will say, oh, we're looking at your television and you're down there doing stuff worse. So there are a number of variables. I love what Jamar said, Dr. Dr. Doc, soon to be Dr. Tisby said, right? That, uh, uh, you know, history rhymes, it echoes, but it's not necessarily repeated. And instead of looking for a Dr. King, let's look at all the various ways, multiple groups of people, and not just the big leaders, the big men in particular, all the ways that women and men, boys and girls are showing up. And I've often said, I think Jamar was on, on, on par with this, that when we talk about where's the black church, we've often limited it, where's the black preacher? But we got to begin to say the black church is larger than the black pulpit, the black preacher. And I also add this last thing. We, we tend to neglect the ways in which integration changed certain dynamics, how opening up more opportunity for more black people to serve as mayors and supervisors and actors and CEOs began to reduce the need for the preacher to be everything to everybody. So then we started looking to politicians, we started looking to entertainers. So there was ways in which the black church I think was a good steward for the times and seasons that we didn't have anything else. It was only the black church you could be somebody. Well, now you can be somebody in a lot of different platforms. And so I was talking to someone today, I think, one of the roles a black church plays today may not be as the leader, but as the coach, not the leader, but the prayer intercessor to stand alongside leaders and, and movement makers and say, look, we ain't got to be on the front line. You ain't got to give me the mic. I'm going to stay. I'll give a closing point. We had a big Black Lives Matter um, march downtown Jackson last summer. Taught some of the young people organizing it. They were all like, look, we really want the preachers to be there. We need your prayers, your presence. We just don't want y'all to be on stage. Hey, I ain't mad at it. And we were there showing that we supported Gen Z and younger millennials with our presence. Sometimes we just need to show up. We ain't got to say nothing. But see, the media may say, well, there were no preachers there. Well, we didn't have collars on. We had on T-shirts. But our presence was still felt by those who needed to feel it. And I think for me, the black church is that. Its presence is felt for the people who need to feel it. Sometimes we got to do better. Sometimes we got to interrogate. We got to analyze. But let's never neglect the fact that the black there's a black church in some rural community that's helping to save the life of some young black boy who is about to take his life or someone else's life because of gang violence. And there's some preacher, some Sunday school teacher snatches him out of the jaws of death and brings him hope. And, and as long as that is a reality, the black church will still be important. You know, wow. Dr. Martin, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Dr. Martin asked the question who are we going to be after the pandemic? And I think that that is a, that's a very salient question. 
who are we going to be? And whenever I think about that that question, I also think about as, in terms of specifically the Black Church, something that we've that we probably have seen in some of our content. If you if you follow us for a little bit, there's been this recurring theme. It's gonna it's gonna come more at us soon. Just gonna kind of kind of you know tip the hand a little a little bit, but not but not spoil anything too much. But there's been this theme of leaving loud. Um, Tyler and I did an episode of Pass the Mic recently um, about leaving loud the, uh, in, in the light of some of these things that have, that have happened in a, in a well-known white denomination. Um, I recently wrote an article uh, for the for the Witness blog called "Why Haven't You Left Yet?" And I'm not going to get too much into because we're not we're not here we're not here centering them, and so I'm not here to center them. But the but the question here is, and who is the Black church going to be? There are a lot of people that bought into integration within the church. And over the last 50 years, but particularly pronounced within the last 20 or 30 years, there have been Black people who have gone into these suburban mega church spaces with the hope of integration. Um, James Cone talked about how integration is a one-way street that only the Black man seems to be able to travel. None of, none of those folks, very few of them folks came, came into our spaces, but we went into their spaces. We brought them music. We brought them, we, we brought them rhythm. We brought their church services soul. We, we brought our culture and stuff to them and we were mistreated. And so I think that a lot of these young, uh, millennials, I'm an old, I'm an elder statesman of the stateswoman of the, of the millennial um, generation born in 1985, but the, but the younger millennials, the, the Gen Z people, a lot of these folks have grown up even without the context for the black church. I think that's something that, that we hadn't quite, that we haven't quite named in this session, but it's the truth is that a lot of people have only grown, a lot of black Christians have only grown up in integrated church spaces and they have no grid for the black church. So then they're going and they're being spiritually and emotionally and psychologically abused in these white church spaces. And then they're, and then some of them are leaving and they feel like it, that they have to leave the faith. There's some of us who grew up in the black church, grew up on a Kojic pew, grew up on a national Baptist pew, grew up in on some of these other pews and went to the white church and then left. But some of us left the black church for, for reasons there were there were people who left for reasons, whether it was misogyny, whether it was queer phobia, whether it was abuses with money, whether it was abuses of power, whether it was abuses sexually, whatever. They, we we left those spaces, and so the black church, I think, and whenever we start talking about who are we going to be, I don't just I mean black church. If you if you if it's a, if it's a church with a black pastor and a majority black congregation we are going to have to address some of these things. As someone who I, I love my tradition, being a Pentecostal and charismatic tradition in, 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 that, in that tradition, but I realized that as a woman who was called to ministry, I could not, as much as I wanted to be ordained into ministry, in those spaces, I realized that in good conscience, I could not be in those spaces. The other issue too, something that we that is especially true of Black Pentecostalism, we are very schismatic. 
There are 50 11, but I, I, I'm sure that you Baptists on here don't know nothing about being schismatic, but Black Pentecostals are schismatic. The economy of the low. Hey, term. you in mixed company, Ali. Chill, chill. This is an in-house conversation. Created schismatic. Okay. This is an in-house conversation, Ali. <laughs> Out here. But we have started 50 11 denominations as Pentecostals. It's like, who, you go to different churches like but anyway that's 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 a whole other different conversation but the, but my point is is that people who have calling to ministry people who who have callings to to their family people who are just wanting to be in black spaces sometimes the black church is not a safe or holistic space for them and i think that that is something that we have to address now i certainly am not going to ever ask anybody to violate their conscience but i think that we have to look at some of our theology and see if our theology theology can expand to include certain people that we have historically excluded, especially in this time when white supremacy is just is just out here running amok and we're getting and we're getting hurt and harmed even in church spaces and then we're, we're it's always it's it's uh king talked about you know integrating people into a burning house and so even it even people being part of white denominations or white mainline denominations or whatever there is I, and i'm not saying here that, that i'm, I'm pro segregation or anything or pro separatism or anything like that i'm just saying that as a black church we have a stewardship to our people. We have a stewardship to all people as ministers, but there's a specific calling that I think that we that we have that's just innate to who we are as leaders, as pastors, as as pastors, as shepherds or whatever, that we need that we need to think these things. And again, you know, I, I understand if people have convictions about women in ministry, I don't want anybody to violate their conscience, but I just want to ask, can your theology expand to include people that maybe were you, you have historically not included? Because I mean people are people are out here, people are out here dying. And so then the last thing I'll say on this is the fact that the that younger generations they what the, the, the line that people have felt like that they that they've held and that and that, that people have held for multiple generations that younger generation millennials some but gen z especially they're thinking in a whole in a whole different way in a whole different set of boxes and so they're not going to come to your historic church just because so and so just because so and so was in the pulpit and you've been here for 175 years that's not the just, and just because you're a good preacher your preaching is whatever they're not coming in the door for that like yes they want to hear something that moves them they want to have the experiences but they but they brought this up in the documentary to get back to the documentary they brought this up during the Ferguson uprising where these people were out here preaching in the streets where these act black activist pastors are out here preaching in the streets and you see young people people hungry for what god is saying to them hung hungry they're they're spiritually hungry I've, I've seen it myself where people are hungry for spirituality they just don't want all the all the mess and all the nonsense and so if if older generations but baby boomers gen xers i'm talking to you if you don't address that my generation gen z we're gonna go someplace else and we're we're gonna like like we don't care about your brand name we're gonna go we're gonna go wherever it is that we feel that we feel called and that we and where we feel called to be and so the black historic church is gonna find itself just sitting out here with and and, and dying off in a generation or two because because a lot of the younger kids aren't gonna put up with it yeah and, and i think this is uh, if i can ask one more question of y'all and, and anyone can hop in on this 
I think this is salient because Ali touched on really two groups of people that I was going to talk um, about in the first group of people that the documentary doesn't really necessarily dive into as much. And that's um, Black Christians in white spaces, white majority uh, spaces and white evangelical spaces um, who have left and evacuated the Black church because of pain or hurt. Um, and not just left, left the faith, but actually went to um, majority white spaces. But then also another group of people, I think it would be remiss of us not to mention uh, this other group of people. There is a sense in which millennials and Gen Z desire kind of a more on the ground activist type of uh, portrayal of our faith and integration of our theology and ethics. And then there's another stream, which is typified by the most popular young black pastor in the world. Um, that would be Mike Todd. And that is a very highly produced, um, very intense, very uh, huge production, um, very kind of culturally cutting edge, multi-ethnic. And so when I, and I understand that Transformation Church probably would not consider themselves to be a black church. That's not how they would categorize themselves. But it is telling that the most popular young black pastor in the world probably couldn't find a place in a category for him to sit in of the categories that were presented in this documentary. So it brings up the question, if that's the case, what will it look like for different generations? Do you have any thoughts um, to the panel on a generational shift? Not just a theology shift, not just a methodology shift, but the generational shift. And what are you seeing on the ground that maybe the documentary doesn't tease out as much? Um. As a graduate student at a university, I get to under, interact with undergrads a bit, and especially among young Black people, 18 to 22 kind of a thing, there seems to be a sense that they have to choose between their faith or their activism. I was talking to a young Black woman, and she said, you know, I can go to my youth group each week. Or I can go to the NAACP meeting. But it seems like if I go to the one, I have to leave my activism at the door. If I go to the other, I have to leave my faith at the door. And never the twain shall meet. And it, so it, it appears to me that in light of really acute justice issues, I've been saying this for months now, that we are in the midst of the modern day civil rights movement. That the same way we talk about the movement in the 50s and 60s, we're going to be talking about the movement in the 2010s and 20s, right? If you blink, you're going to miss it. But uh, basically, if we don't show up for justice in particular, it feels like, I think, to young people that the black church is irrelevant. You know, And I, I think this is one of those places where history rhymes. I don't think this is unique to this era. It's always been the case, right? Long, younger generations are like, okay, come on, let's go, right? Um, and, and religion is inherently conservative in the sense, not politically, but preserving institutions, preserving traditions, right? So it always takes an openness and a willingness on the part of older generations to let go, to open up, to include, and to adapt. And to the extent that folks aren't willing to do that there i mean there's they're gonna be left behind honestly because the movement's not going to stop it's on the move right so so i do think there is um it is incumbent upon black church leaders 
to think about justice and how they can get involved, even if not as an institutional thing, like, 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 like Dr. Rhodes was mentioning, you know, you can show up in your t-shirt and hand out bottles of water, whatever it might be, but, but the option is not available not to participate if you want to include younger generations. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I think this is probably, if there is one thing that keeps this uh, mythical uh, group of the black church up at night, it is what is happening to our children? Where are our children? And I think if we were to trace it back historically, the black church and the black family has tended to have a children are to be seen and not heard attitude in general, in general. Now, there's so much research. Um, uh, Fuller did the sticky faith research, and it proves that young people who grow up and worship in multi-generational uh, environments actually cling to their faith more. And so I, I wonder if maybe that's why, you know, my, my grandmother, when we went to Pittsburgh and we would go to our church, she would make us sit there in church and some sometimes calling us to sing. I mean, it would, there was no youth church. There was no Sunday school, it was just church. And we were all right there. So there was a great value to that. Um, some could argue that the inception of youth church as a concept, when it entered the black church and specifically mega church spaces, it created a divide because now younger people are learning faith from their peers and not learning the faith of their mothers and fathers and grandparents. They're not seeing uh, daddy lose his job and then come and worship and cry and say, we're gonna make it. They're seeing a drop off service. You go to your thing, you go get cleaned up like the Christian dry cleaner, I'll pick you up afterward and you'll be telling me the Bible story that you learned. So it could be that we've created a gap by this overemphasis of programming. We've programmed a generation out of the church because we insisted that they come to me with a Noah's Ark depiction and not come sit next to me as I worshiped God. Um, so, and you know, there's another argument to be made that this may be one of the reasons why black families are leaving black churches, because when their kids are saying, yeah, well, you know, the, the predominantly white church is having a prom and it's a Christian prom, then the kids are bringing their parents to a church and a parent, especially a Gen Xer will be like, eh, I can get preaching online someplace. I'll put up with this preaching as long as my child is having an experience. And by experience, we mean bringing home an activity, meeting a new friend, and remembering what the smoke and lights look like. I mean, this could be a very skeptical perspective, but it could be one of the reasons that we're missing. I think one of the challenges we're gonna have to wrestle with is what it looks like to lead in an authentic and redemptive way now. The state of the church uh, research, one of the, the surprising factors that I saw was that Jen, Z, which by the way, tends to be a bit less skeptical. Sorry, Allie. They're not as skeptical as millennials. They're actually a bit more open. My bad, my bad. I'm just, I'm baptizing them with my skepticism. So I'm naturally skeptical. Millennials are turning Gen Z off. So, but no, I'm joking. Um, but it, it basically said that Gen Z believes that the future, essentially the hope of the church is in the pastor. So very personality driven. That makes me excited and very nervous at the same time. Very, very nervous. So when we say a Michael Todd, when we say that, you know, a, a T.D. Jakes, when you ask a young preacher, who, what do you want to, what's your calling, what's your vocation? They say, I want to be like, fill in the blank, makes me so nervous because now we've got 
big personalities on big pedestals, probably surrounded by people who say yes to them all the time and just setting themselves up for a fall. And what will you do when that pastor falls? So how do we create redemptive images of leadership that might model for the next generation? You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be called. You don't have to have it all together. You just have to be obedient. You don't have to, you know, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to have the smoke and the lights that you saw in your fancy youth church. You just have to have something from God. And my last thing is one of the things that stuck with me about the documentary was the number of the old hymns and spirituals that I knew. It got me choked up. And it dawned on me as I was listening to it. I I I believe it was a prayer, but I said it out loud. I was like, Lord. I got to make sure my kids know these songs. I have to make sure they know these songs. They are five and seven. Oh, oh no, gosh, she would get so mad at me. She just had a birthday. She's eight, but five and eight. And I want them to know the songs that got us over, not because of the Black experience, but because of the God that carried our grandparents and great-grandparents through. So again, for me, it is how do we create intergenerational worship experiences where boomers can worship next to Gen Z and lower, and where we can grow together, I think that's going to be part of the challenge. You know, Dr. Martin hit a little bit on, and thank you for correcting my, my <laughs> baptism. I was baptizing millennial Missouri. And I'm also from Missouri, so I'm naturally just really super skeptical, skeptical of things anyway. Um, but yes, I was baptizing the, the younger generation in my millennial um, skepticism. But as I, I have a, I have a, um, four-year-old and my, and I, an almost, um, seven-year-old. And, um, we used to attend a predominantly white, it was diverse and multicultural for the area that we were in. We were in, we lived in a, in a city that was like 90 something percent whites, but it was, but it was the most diverse church in the city that we lived in. And we had that experience of, of being in the church, of having, of having the children's ministry, having all that, all that stuff in my kid. And that had actually been um, the dominant experience that um, especially that my oldest had, had had in her life. And so whenever it was time for us to to leave that church and I felt called um, to to start attending an Episcopal church because one day, I hope by the grace of God, um, to be ordained in the Episcopal church. Um, but I had but but we had left this church and started going to uh, to a small Anglo-Catholic Episcopal church that it, it was like a chapel style church. So, I mean, you know, it, it I think could only maybe seat like a high capacity, maybe only for 100 people. There weren't that many people there. Um, but it was a very it was a very different thing. They didn't they didn't have children's ministry. They had like a, a Sunday school that happened before church, but they didn't have a children's ministry. And it was something that I didn't really know what to do with. I, I was really nervous about it at first because I was, because I was like, oh my gosh, are these people, are they going to, because, because I, my, my youngest, you know, was two at the time. She still has a mind of her own, but she definitely had a mind of her own then. And it was just very loud. And it was just very like, whatever. And I'm just like, I don't want to like disrupt these people's thing. Like I'm not trying to kill their vibe in their church. And as soon, like, like you are know, our, our first Sunday there, people were just like, Oh, it's so good to see kids in the church. Oh, this is so, this is so wonderful, whatever. And it was predominantly white church. So I was kind of like, okay, cool. But, but I was like, Oh, y'all, y'all really mean this. And then going, you know, to, to, uh, again, to a, to a uh, black church, 
that is in the same tradition and that's the same type of setup whenever we we've been able to go to church selectively because of because of the pandemic here like it's it's happened a few it, church has been open a, a few Sundays and it's not been open other Sundays but having this experience of that intergenerational worship I actually really feel like my children are being they're, they're seeing some of the traditions they're hearing some of the things I do think that there's that there's merit to you know they're, they're being value to kids learning things in a way that's relevant to them but I, but I say that to the to the larger to the larger point of whenever we start to talk about some of these different experiences and stuff within the church and whenever we start to talk about the future of the church and what does it what does it look like what does it look like for the for the um gen z and the millennial and the and their children um that are that are growing up in some of these spaces, what does it, what does it look like? What does the future of the church look like? What, do, what does it look like for those hymns that we, that, that we used to sing and that we know and that our grandmamas used to sing? What does it, what does the future of, of the church look like? And that is really a, that that's really a great unknown. What I, what I think what I think should should happen. What I think, and I mean, not that anybody's out there really listening to what what you know what Allie Haynes like thinks. Like, oh, like the black church is going to be like, oh, well, she said it. I guess we got to do it. Like, <laughs> I, doubt, I doubt that anybody that, that anybody really cares in my opinion. But something that that I would like to see is, you know. Something that I've learned just from being in different different traditions, different churches, whatever, something that I've learned is that a lot of stuff comes simply down to preference. It comes simply down to what is it comes simply down to what you what you believe, what you kind of what you think, what makes you what makes you feel good in your heart. And something that I would like that I would love to see is okay, you know, Michael Todd, he's not he's not necessarily black church in the way that we would think about it. But, you know, I, I don't know him, maybe this happens, but what would it look like if some of the black churches, some of the pastors in, in his area, in his region, gathered around him rather than seeing him as a competitor seeing him as somebody that that's siphoning off you know the, the 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 young families and stuff from the church what if they got what if they got around him what would it but then at the same time what would it look like for some of these people who aren't part of traditions that historically are black church what would it look like for us to say you know what we might not do worship the same way we might not have some of the same values some of the same distinctives but we're going to sit at your feet and and learn. Whenever we talk about, whenever we talk about, um, what was it? What is it? Micah four six, Malachi four six. That the hearts of the sons turning the daughter, or the hearts of the fathers turning the sons. I, I'm I'm I am not good at quoting scripture. I I promise I've read the Bible and I know what's in it. But I'm always like. It's in the it's, it's in the book. You just you just gonna have to find it. It's the Holy Spirit, but it's in, but it's in there. I am terrible at chapter and verse. I'm, I'm so it's, it's embarrassing. But anyway, but there's but there's a scripture about the hearts of the fathers turning to the sons, and the hearts of the sons turning to the fathers. And so what I see and, and what I wonder what would happen is what would it look like for some of that old guard for some of that for for some of that old guard to turn to some of these to some of these young guns and be like. Hey, you know, we're, we're, we're going to come. We're going to we're going we're gonna to be together. We may not do everything the same, but we're going to be together. What would it look like for some of these young guns to turn to, to turn to their local black Presbyterian congregation, their local cogent congregation, their local whatever black whatever congregation? And what would it what would it look like? To, to sit for them to sit at the feet and to learn. And if they're not learning the, all the tradition, they're learning the history, they're learning the stories. And I think that that's, that that would be how we would, that's one way that we could, that we could move forward as a church.
Um, so a couple of things. One, um, I think Jamar was spot on in one sense about justice, but I do want to caution us that preaching and doing justice isn't a church growth strategy because outside of maybe Friendship West in Dallas, Texas, most justice churches are not mega churches. Um, and and uh, we see that with the dying liberal mainline. We see that with a lot, you know, uh, Dr. King pastored with 300 people. I think William Barber is around the same number. So I want to be, want people to, you know, definitely do justice, right? Love justice, preach justice, but don't think, ma'am, I have like, you know, 1,500 young people join my church because we're talking about justice. It, it, it probably won't happen, all right? So number one. Number two, I think I think Dr. Martin had a really interesting point about the sort of segregated, uh, you know, by age uh, worship. I, I think, um, though, that the real issue, and I'm talking like an old millennial now, the real issue is that baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials to varying and growing degrees stop discipling at home. So it's not just about worshiping together. It's we don't do worship, discipleship outside of church other than let me drop my children off at the youth meeting so I can go do life because I'm tired. Like I'm busy. I got work. Right. So I think about my grandmother from the greatest generation who sang hymns not just at church, but in the house as she's cooking food. And, and, and the humming and all, it gets stuck in, like, it's not just sit on this pew and listen to this stuff. Because I remember growing up, I couldn't stand my little missionary Baptist church. I didn't know what they were doing. One deacon on one day, you know, oh, Lord, they, they prepare, I was like, I didn't know what's, like, can we please, go? I tried to fake sickness every Sunday. Because I didn't know what in the world was going on. But now that I'm older, I have a great appreciation for that. And I think, I'll just, you know, this this is a, you know, this is not a scientific statement, but I think as that greater generation dies off, the younger generation succeeding have not picked up the baton to transmit the faith in, in a variety of ways, right? For instance, the Church of Covenant talks about not just how we love each other and what we do for each other, but we have family devotion, right? How many of us actually sit at the table together, pray together, talk about things, say before you op- open your mouth and put food in it? Cite me a Bible verse. Like all these little things that our, our people did, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, 1950s, 1960s, that baby boomers said, we're tired of it, right? They started, you know, being busy. Uh, Gen X said, yeah, we, we're not going to do this as much. And then millennials, you know, think about the levels. I think Dr. Martin has spoken about this, the levels of biblical illiteracy today. We got more Bibles today. Back in the day, all you had was King James. There was nobody else but King James. Now we got 2011, what'd you say earlier, 5011? We got 5011 denominations, 5011 translations. And we ain't reading them, right? We got Bible app. And we only open it when it's time to, you know, you know, turn to your Bibles or to your Bible app, right? So I think we have to, you know, be honest about the ways in which we've made church all about the event on Sunday and what I get from it. And the reality is for millennials and Gen Z, there's a whole lot of religious consumerism, a whole lot of, you know, we go to what's production oriented and flashy and all that stuff that grandma and them used to do that we didn't fully understand that we thought was old timey, you know, back in the day when you got sick, you just drink some ginger ale, eat some crackers, put some turpentine on, you'll be okay. You know, we threw all of that away, not turpentine, whatever that red stuff was. I don't know. It was some red stuff. It burned. (laughs) 
So we threw all of that away. And I think part of the problem is that we have, we have been so, so we do retail shopping for churches. I need to make sure there's a coffee shop. I need to make sure there's a youth ministry. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but it, it continues to outsource our responsibility to train up the children as they ought to go. Right. And I think the earlier that you expose them to the faith, to hymns, to songs, to moral lessons, the more likely they are to sort of stay with that versus not really getting it, only coming to youth meetings to get pizza and play basketball. And when they get to college, then they meet the Hebrew Israelites, right? And they are giving them four hours of teaching. And we didn't want to give them 20 minutes of it. So, you know, I think I think the disconnect is not just what the church or the preacher is doing. I think we just haven't really done enough as families to recognize. And, not, you know, we understand that all families are different, right? But back in the day, we had diverse families back in the day, but we had neighborhoods and communities, right? We had porches, not backyards. We watched one another. We looked out for each other. And so as we became more individualistic and more self-centered and more consumerist, we started to see how we stopped transmitting the faith. And I think we have to return to some of those things. Now, everything back in the day went good. Some of it was toxic, but there are some great lessons and nuggets we need to call from the past to ensure that we're able to train up our own families and children in ways that honor God and can extend uh, the legacy of the faith. Wow. Um, listen, I want to honor our panelists' time, and y'all dropped the mic about five or six times in the midst of the last 10 minutes. I see these questions about um, historically Black theological institutions. I see the questions about legalism. I see the questions about sexuality. I see all these questions. And I feel as though it would be best for us to pause it, stop it here, and do a part two. How, how's that? Can, I, can, can, we, can we barter here? Can we bargain here? <laughs> Come let us reason together. Um, we are going to stop it here to honor the panelists' time, the hours far spent, uh, to use our old colloquialism in the Black church, the hours far spent. And I want to release these panelists. They have been phenomenal. You have honored us with your time and your insights. But we do want to do a part two so we can address some of these questions, get a little bit deeper, um, maybe bring on some other voices, all these things. I don't have to be here. We can bring somebody else in to facilitate. But I do want to continue this conversation. These are the conversations that we want to have here at The Witness. Our mission is that we want to educate, encourage, and empower Black Christians to be free in our souls and our bodies. And so that is something that we are passionate about, and it includes talking about these crucial conversations about Black faith, Black Christianity, and Black church. Before we close out, I want to give everybody an opportunity just to say where they can support and where people can support and follow you. We'll start with Dr. Martin. Where can people support and follow you, Dr. Martin? Ooh, great question. Okay, so um, you can follow me on social media, but I'm a classic Gen Xer on social media, which means after I make dinner and get gets in bed and spend some time with family, then I might post, which is terrible. Um, but Facebook is fine. Um, SFI Ministries is Soul Fire International Ministries. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's a good way to start. Awesome. Dr. Rhodes? Yes, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, CJ Rhodes on Facebook and Rev Rhodes 82, I think, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, shameless plug, I did write a book about some of the matters we talked about regarding Black Baptists. And I was about to say, you better, you better plug, plug your book. Come <laughs> yeah. on now. Yeah, it's titled Deeper Steel. And um, 
It talks about C.P. Jones and the Mount Helm context and the emergence of Bapticostalism. So uh, I think Allie would be a Bapticostalian now, something along those lines. <laughs> uh, and so you can uh, get that on Amazon. If you want a signed copy, go to cjroads.org uh, for a signed copy that can be mailed uh, from me to you. Dr. Martin, you want to plug your book? You know, I felt bad. I was like, everybody held their book up. I got to find it. Okay, so I wrote two books. Uh, one is Made to Lead Empower Women for Ministry. I hear my sister Allie working her way toward ordination. I am praying with you. I'm going to send you my book. Um, and I also wrote a Lenten devotional. We're in the middle of Lent. It's called Leaning and Letting Go. Awesome. Uh, Allie, where can people support you and follow you? Well, first of all, I ain't got no book. Everybody out here, Tyler is on. Because you're writing it. <laughs> well, that's we that we we try to do that, but we'll see. Um, so I, I have a book to plug, um, but you can find me on Facebook, um, like a pay, writer's page, Allie Henny, as we you'll see my face and kind of pinkish red background. That's my public profile. If you try to friend me on Facebook, I'm probably I'm just gonna be real. I'm probably not gonna accept your friend request. Um, you can you can follow me, but unless I unless like we have mutuals, I know how our mutuals are set up. I'm probably not going to add you as a friend, and no nothing nothing personal. Um, you can also find me on Instagram again. My name Allie Henny. Um, you can also find me on Twitter as at the Armchair Com. The Armchair Com is short for the Armchair Commentary, which is my blog that I don't post to um, nearly enough. But hey, that's the thing. If you want to find me there, and then of course um, you can find me acting up um, on witness stuff, mostly past the mic now. But but one of these days there's going to be new episodes of Combing the Roots. And yeah, you can find me acting up on the witness and, and yelling at Tyler and whatever, giving him a hard time at, at witness stuff. So as always, as uh, always, Ashley Spray is always <laughs> awesome. Well, finally, Jamar Tisby, the CEO of the Witness Inc. I know you got about a thousand things to tell us about, brother. So get in it. Listen, a couple of things. Number one, obviously, go to go to howtofightracism.com. We got the website domain, y'all. How to fight racism. Dot com. Go there, purchase the book wherever books are sold. But if you like this kind of conversation, Black-centered, honest, informed, that's what we do at The Witness. We are in the midst of our first official fundraising campaign called the Will You Be a Witness campaign. We are raising $500,000 to support the Black Christian Collective which Tyler is the president of, but also the Witness Foundation, which is our other branch. And we are putting together a cohort of five black Christian leaders and supporting them to the tune of $50,000 a year for two years. If you want to support black-led Christian ministries, go to thewitnessinc.com, thewitnessinc.com, and answer the question in the affirmative, will you be a witness? Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, as always, I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk, as I say. Subscribe to Pass the Mic wherever podcasts are played. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you to our audience wait, members. Hey, wait, wait. And, and I'm going to talk about the, the uh, merch, merch, right? I'm sorry. And I, I spoiled your ending for the... Um, I'll see. <laughs> we're going to do this again. I, I spoiled your ending for the, for the recording. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. It's all good. But hey, listen, we have merch available. Uh, Jamar has shirts. Uh, Jamar has a Pastor Mike shirt on. Ali has a witness hoodie on. So you can go to thewitnessbcc.com. 
No, no. See, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> what? Don't do. Don't do. You're going to go there. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell them. Tell them where they can get. Slide into the DMs on <laughs> Facebook. No, no. Don't slide into the DMs. Like no, don't no. slide into the DMs. No, but I mean, but I'm just Send saying. A respectful DM. Do do a respectful slide into the DMs. A, a holy slide into the DMs on Facebook or Instagram, and we'll hook you up with a form where you can where you can order. Awesome, so awesome. I'm wearing, I'm wearing. Y'all want that witness stuff. Come I'm on, y'all. Ending. I'm sorry. Nah, it's all good. Thank you so much for correcting me. Listen, thank y'all again. We'll see you next time on The Witness Live right here at Pass the Mic and witnessbcc.com. Y'all be blessed. See you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.